Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the latest absurdity in the Republican culture wars, with the first veto Biden is poised to exercise now that the House and Senate have passed a resolution overturning a Labor Department ruling on ESG, environmental social governance, being considered by managers of Wall Street's retirement funds, which Ron DeSantis and the GOP have seized on as woke capitalism. Joining us to discuss the extent to which Florida Governor DeSantis is setting the Republican agenda with his racist dog whistle attacks on the woke and woke capitalism, which does not exist, is Michael Binder, a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics, and public opinion. He is the faculty director of the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. Then we look into whether there is any possibility of a peaceful solution to the war in Ukraine in which Russia appears to want to outlast the Ukrainians while their country is incrementally destroyed. Joining us to discuss the need for a peaceful solution and also comment on Cy Hirsch's article that has found traction on the American left is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. He served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations including the U.S. Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. Then finally, we'll assess whether Putin's appearance on state TV today and his convening of Russia's National Security Council tomorrow to address so-called terrorist acts on Russian soil is Olga Lautman, a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and host and co-host of the Kremlin Files podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. We will discuss whether the incident Putin is alarmed about actually happened and that the so-called Nazis behind it are working for the Ukrainians, which is clearly the last thing Ukraine needs, could be a prelude for a false flag operation to be carried out by the Kremlin so that Putin can impose martial law. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news 
as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Michael Bender, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American political and public opinion, and he's the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Bender. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And you're about the only person I know that thinks that Governor DeSantis could crash and burn or that there's less to him than meets the eye. You've got Fox News throwing their weight entirely behind him. Now you've got President Biden about to issue his first veto on this anti-woke capitalism bill, which shows you just how much influence DeSantis has uh, since he got a majority of uh, votes in the House and the Senate on this ridiculous bill where there's, you know, there's no such thing as woke capitalism, but we know that woke itself is clearly a racist term, essentially a dog whistle against African-Americans and white people who support African-Americans. That's, well, let's begin with that. Do you believe that woke itself is a racist term? I mean, limiting, I mean, I don't want to say it's it's exclusive to to black Americans. I mean, there's a lot of undertones in the trans community and the LGBT community as well that that this this really plays to. And and I don't want that to be underestimated. You know, the idea that I don't know, people are created equally uh, no matter what their skin color or their sexual preference or their gender identity. Uh, I know some people think that's a foreign concept. Uh, I tend not to. Uh, so I think that's probably uh, really, it's not just a race thing. It, it's all encompassing. So let's then, uh, have you revised your opinion that this guy, there's less to him than meets the eye, that the more he is on the campaign trail, the less appealing he'll, he'll become? I, I don't know that I have. I mean, there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. And I'm not sitting here saying that he has zero chance and, and he's a complete huckster and a fraud. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying there are, there are big questions that are yet to be answered. And he's got a little bit of a prickly personality. Uh, there's people that have interacted with him behind the scenes that, you know, don't have great things to say about him. I admit, I mean, I think self-admittedly, he is not your typical charismatic campaigner. Maybe like a, a Donald Trump will be a great example, right? You put him in front of 50,000 people, he couldn't be happier. Uh, that That's not where DeSantis likes to be. And those things come out over the course of a campaign. What happens when he's standing next to Donald Trump across the stage when Trump starts lobbing insults at him. How does he handle those sorts of things? Um, you know, a bunch of people in 2016 couldn't. So we'll, we'll see what happens this time around. Well, there's a possibility that 2024 will be a replay of 2016. You'll have a lot of Republican candidates, DeSantis among them, and uh, Trump being a reality TV star, he'll knock them all off the island. So it, it the real more candidates you have, the more the vote is split, the better chance Trump has. Sure, that's absolutely true. And it's also, you know, Trump supporters are Trump supporters. Let's be clear about that. They may like Ron DeSantis. They may vote for Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump isn't in the race. But Trump people are Trump people. There are Trump people showing up at 
DeSantis book signings uh, just this week and were shuffled away by the DeSantis people. And these are, you know, these folks aren't going anywhere. And then they vote. And we learn now that they vote in these Republican primaries. Well, there was a very funny thing on Fox News. Uh, one of their reporters, you know, and they're, they're all in the bag for DeSantis, and it's a propaganda outfit, in case you hadn't noticed, Michael, from the latest court filings in the Dominion voting systems case. So this reporter is at a, a DeSantis book signing, and he goes around the room and says, who are you going to vote for? And they, they everybody, says, everybody says Donald Trump, and he's getting more and more desperate. So he goes to a woman who's wearing a DeSantis T-shirt, and <laughs> and even she's equivocating. <laughs> yes, I mean that's that's what's real about this, right? I'm, Trump supporters are Trump supporters, and while DeSantis is nice, he's not Trump. And the never Trump vote wing of the Republican Party, I'm not sure how attracted to Ron DeSantis they are because the policies that he put he's pushing really aren't necessarily kind of the policies that they were by and large supportive of when they kind of moved away from the Republicans if they were never Trumpers. So he's really, he's not making great reaches for those folks. He's, re he's reaching for the base, the Republican Trump base. And if Trump's gone, well, then, then, then he's, he's really in, in really good shape. But if Trump is there, um, that's a really big hurdle. So how is his move against Disney playing in Florida? So the short answer is it's mixed. Um, there's, there's a lot of ambivalence about Disney in the state of Florida, right? Obviously, if, if you work there or if your business is directly tied to tourism in Orlando, you, you maybe have a different perspective. Uh, but outside of that, you know, there's a lot of people that live in Florida and maybe have lived here for a long time and, and don't like driving through the traffic and chaos of Orlando. Uh, maybe they're not a huge fan of what it's done to our state, maybe from a nature perspective or even just a congestion perspective. So there's always been a little tension with Disney among the populace in the state of Florida. Now, what ultimately happens with this new board that's been created and appointed by DeSantis how that impacts Disney on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not clear to me that a whole lot will change. Potentially it could, but I think this is one of those policies, much like many that he's touted. Uh, we don't really know the effects until down the road. So given that he's going after woke capitalism and it looks like Biden's first veto will be a bill that passed the Senate because of John Tester and Manchin joining with the Republicans and John Fetterman being in hospital for depression, the House, of course, passed it as well. So this anti-woke agenda, I mean, there's no such thing as anti-woke capitalism to begin with, but he's made a big issue out of it. So he's had some influence, clearly. Ron DeSantis isn't the only one speaking to wokeness. Uh, he He's just the one that's on TV right now. This is a common theme throughout a, a multitude of, of Republican states. And it's it's really creating this outs, this kind of outlandish cartoon character uh, of what somebody who's concerned about, a, you know, quality and equity look like. Right. And and that term 
it's like the welfare queen from back in the in the 80s and 90s. And, and it has all of these connotations associated with it that maybe like a lot of stereotypes have this really narrow kernel of truth if you squint to see it, but it just gets overly exaggerated. Well, the way I see this guy is he's just a little kind of tin pot fascist. Every time you see him on TV, he's got these big burly cops behind him. I mean, he's an educated guy who's going against educated people. There's just a brazen cynicism there. Is it fair to suggest that he is a kind of wannabe fascist? I mean, I, I certainly think there's an argument to be made that he is exerting intense executive power, expanding the role of the governor's office in the state of Florida, influencing with political appointments institutions in the state that haven't been affected, ought not to be affected by the by the political arm of the governor's office. And he's making that larger and larger, creating larger patronage positions, you know, in a lot of ways, almost like an old political machine from back in the 19th century. Uh, that's really what it looks like to me. And he's using a lot of different tools to do that. He has a, a state legislature with super majorities that are all too willing to go along with it because they're fearful of going against him, that he would come back and in a primary endorse an alternative candidate that could have a negative impact on them. So he's in a position right now where he is wielding a ton of authority and it's not necessarily for the betterment of the state. It's clearly for the betterment of, of his political campaign. Uh, the, the, the question is, you know, are folks entirely on board with this once they see all these policies get put into place? The sad part is it might take a, a couple of years for us to really see the effects of these. And at that point, you know, it, it's too late for a presidential race. So again, without belaboring the word fascism, which is, you know, thrown around a lot, and softened quite irresponsibly. But let's face it, Hitler burned books. He, was, he went after gay people, and I'm sure he went after trans people as well. That seems to be the focus of this guy's DeSantis. He's obviously making it a sort of litmus test for the Republicans, and they're running with it and passing all kinds of nasty, hateful, cruel bills across the country against this incredibly tiny minority of trans people. And the whole thing is completely out of whack. But again, I feel like we're in the early days of Hitler down there in Florida with the book burners, with all this anti-gay and anti-trans stuff. And now he's taking over the schools, taking over the curriculums, bringing in his own school board members. And now they have students demonstrating against him. So do you think the students have a chance of stopping this juggernaut? Uh, I don't I don't know that students necessarily are, are the the saving grace of, of democracy down here. Uh, it's good that students are involved and they care and, and then they're expressing their opinions. But but you're right about, you know, picking on this trans community, which is a fraction of a percentage of the population. And what makes it easier for him to do is because they're so small and, and different in a lot of ways than let's say kind of your average voter, most folks don't interact with trans people all that much slash ever, right? Things changed for gay Americans when people started looking around and seeing their cousins, their uncles, their neighbors, their, their sisters. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I know these people, they're regular people. They're not these terrible, scary pedophiles. 
people aren't exposed to trans people enough because there's so few of them and because they've been so isolated that enables this type of othering to them and if listen if every family every family has somebody who's gay in it somewhere in the in the reaches of it if every family had somebody who's trans in it this wouldn't be happening because there'd be an understanding that these folks are actually people. And for heaven's sakes, if you want to talk about a, a group of people that has more mental health concerns and more problems stacked against them internally than anybody, it's these folks. You know, we really ought to be trying to help these people and, and ease them and make them part of society because they feel so out of it already. And, and they are actively attempting to ostracize them even further. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a horrible use of government resources. So just in the last few minutes then, uh, Michael Binder, what's wrong with the Democratic Party in Florida? I know that Manny Diaz is a complete catastrophe, and a lot of the Democratic operatives at the highest levels are just brain dead, and we know that. But you mentioned this, the Republicans have a supermajority in the legislature, they ran against DeSantis, a complete serial loser. What's the problem with the Democrats? Why is it becoming such a red state, Florida? Well, I think two things. One, there's been a, a, a real shift in movement in the population, right? As we've had more older white people move to the state over the last several years, we get more Republicans because that's who they are, right? Old white retirees in 2023 are by and large Republican. So as people are retiring down here, you know, we've moved a net four to five percent Republican. We've gone from plus two D to almost plus three Republican. So that's a big shift. That's one piece of it. The other piece of it is you're right. The leadership of the Democratic Party has not been good and they don't have any resources. Nikki Freed has taken over control of the, of the Democratic Party. She's the new party leader here. We'll see if she's able to bring an infusion of resources and organization in. The other part is if you're the party of the minority and you have been statewide for, for decades now, it reduces your ability to incentivize younger candidates and create a bench, right? Because, okay, yeah, let's run for city council and I can get into the state legislature. I can get some bills passed. I can run for the state Senate. Maybe I can run for a statewide office. Uh, if some of that doesn't work out, um, I can siphon off into the private sector, maybe get an appointment, something like that. Democrats, once you're at a city council or maybe a mayor in some urban cities, there's nothing. Because if you're in Tallahassee, you're, you're the minority party, you have no power, you get nothing done. There's no statewide positions available for you. There's no appointments available for you. So there's no, there's not, isn't this career path that exists for Republicans that's better for cultivating a bench? And I think those are a couple of the problems. The other problem, and I've talked about this, Jacksonville is a great example of it. We had a, a little democratic machine around Corinne Brown uh, particularly among the black community in Jacksonville when she was in office before she got sent to jail. But they didn't really interact with the white Democrats. And that coalition of crossing racial lines is it, a hurdle for Democrats that they haven't really been able to successfully overcome here in Florida. Uh, Republicans don't have that problem. They've been able to interact with the Hispanic community, particularly the Cuban community, they're making more inroads as they push a lot of these social issues lately. Uh, but that's those are some of the big hurdles. And money is, is really an important one, too. They just don't have it. So just in closing, what's going to stop DeSantis? 
I think two things can stop DeSantis. I think DeSantis can stop himself if he doesn't convey to Republicans that he's a charismatic, likable guy, and I am a good alternative to Donald Trump. Uh, the other thing that could potentially stop him uh, are the, I don't want to say the upper leadership of the Republican Party, but those precinct captains in Iowa and New Hampshire and things like that. Uh, if they get to know him and they don't like him and they find somebody else that could be an alternative, uh, that's an option too. That being said, having Fox News in your pocket is immensely valuable. And it's even more valuable if they're, as it looks like it's being done, they're putting Trump on the outs. Uh, that's going to really, really advantage DeSantis. Well, Marco Bender, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to chat. And again, I'll be speaking with Marco Bender, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Florida, whose research interests include voter decision-making, direct democracy, American politics, and public opinion. And he's the faculty director for the Public Opinion Research Laboratory at the University of North Florida. We're going to take a brief station break and back look into whether there is any possibility of a peaceful solution to a war in Ukraine in which Russia appears to want to outlast the Ukrainians while their country is incrementally destroyed. And something is happening here, but you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones? you facts when someone attacks your imagination but nobody has any respect any way they already expect you to all give a check to tax deductible charity organization Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. He served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the U.S. Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest, On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin. Thank you so much for having me on again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Bill. And what do you think uh, of the latest sort of geopolitical moves in terms of Ukraine and the war? We've had the Munich Security Conference. We've had a lot of, you know, triumphalism, and uh, which I think is very premature on the part of American leaders like Biden and others, suggesting that Ukraine is winning. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs says Russia's lost on all counts. It seems very, very premature. But nevertheless, uh, now you've got Lukashenko meeting with Xi Jinping, and the fear now is that China will, since their peace proposal was not taken seriously, and I don't think it was serious. Is there a possibility, you think, that China could start funneling arms through uh, Belarus as a cutout? Well, first, let's just review where we are one year after the invasion. Uh, Russia is losing. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that militarily Russia has 
failed to really reach any of its objectives. Uh, it had to withdraw from uh, northern Ukraine after it failed to take Kyiv. It had to withdraw from western Ukraine uh, after it was not able to hold on to Kherson uh, province. And it even has lost some territory in Luhansk, which it had complete control of. It had to withdraw from Kharkiv. And now, though we have all eyes on the Battle of Mahmoud, the reality is that uh, uh, that the Russian army since April has managed to move about 45 miles, which is the distance between, say, Washington, D.C. and uh, the northern suburbs of Baltimore. Uh, and, and so I think that we see a, a virtual stalemate uh, with always some promise that the Russians are going to be able to mobilize more forces, with always some promise that the West is going to provide Ukraine with war-winning weapons. And though none of those are necessarily going to make a difference in terms of this stalemate, uh, the Russians are definitely losing. And ultimately, uh, the geopolitical question will be how the war ends, not, uh, not necessarily uh, what happens in the trench lines uh, as the months and weeks go forward. But what would it take for Ukraine to win to the point where Putin would be willing to make a deal? Well, I think that there's... Uh, a wide variety of factors. One would be domestic politics in Russia itself, uh, whether or not uh, uh, Putin's security machine is so powerful that uh, it's managed to suppress all Russian dissent and, and, and even just Russian dissatisfaction with the war. A second would be the Russian military itself, which might uh, decide that it's lost enough, and uh, including prestige, that uh, it doesn't want to continue to fight on Putin's behalf. Uh, the third would be a, a real uh, impact of sanctions over time that uh, would again affect uh, the domestic situation, uh, especially if Europe is able to, quote, survive the winter, which, of course, we were predicting uh, just months ago they wouldn't be able to. Um, so I, I think that there are a lot of factors, but none of them are necessarily military. Uh, Ukraine seems to be capable of holding its own at this point and, and in even making progress in some areas. Uh, and uh, I think that the missing ingredient, uh, to, tell, to tell you the truth, um, is that in our zeal uh, to defend Ukraine and in our zeal to uh, uh, hurt uh, Putin, uh, we've lost the neutral parties uh, that might have been the back channels to begin uh, actual and real negotiations. Sweden and Finland are now uh, virtual members of NATO. Switzerland has been providing arms uh, to Ukraine. Uh, the United Nations is sort of hopeless in its support for war. And uh, I, I I do see China's potential. I thought that Turkey might be able to hold the position between uh, NATO, which it's a member of, and, and, and Russia. I thought that uh, India might play a role, and we saw today in the G20 uh, meetings in, in, in India that uh, certainly there seems to be a desire on the part of uh, the Indian government and Modi to be in the middle of Russia and uh, and and the United States between the between Russia and NATO. So, uh, as a military expert, I look at the war and say 
there's nothing that's going to happen in the war that's going to uh, equal a rapid dissolution or an advance. And so I'm looking for uh, the dip diplomatic uh, efforts that would be necessary uh, for there to be some kind of ceasefire and then a negotiated solution. And I lament the fact that our overestimation of Russia has essentially forced uh, the 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 neutral parties, the traditional neutral parties like Sweden and and Finland and Switzerland, uh, to take sides, and I think that that is more of a manifestation of our lack of understanding and lack of candor about the question of Russia's military strength than it is about Russia's actual threat to Western Europe. But at the G20, of course, there was a ten-minute meeting between. Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia and Secretary of State Blinken. I don't know that they got much done in 10 minutes. There was also on Tuesday a hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at which a lot of Republican senators expressed growing skepticism about funding the war for Ukraine. If I was in Putin's shoes, my best play would be to influence the pro-Putin caucus in the House, the, the so-called Freedom Caucus, and people like Tucker Carlson at Fox News, do you think there's any chance that the West could start cutting funds? Um, I certainly think that uh, the Congress uh, will have an influence on the outcome here. Uh, I, I doubt that it will be in the form of actually uh, defunding uh, U.S. aid to Ukraine. And even if it were to be that, it doesn't mean that Ukraine would crumble. Uh, but I have to say I applaud the Congress asking the question of what it is that we're actually doing in Ukraine. I, I, I think that we haven't had that debate. And I just know from my own friends and, and from people that I know who are not steeped in Washington, that there are a lot of questions on their minds as to why the United States is spending so much money and uh, why the United States is, is uh, taking such risks and so I don't see it as a pro-Putin effort. I do see it as an important part of the American awakening as to what it is, is our end game. And, and since the Biden administration has been unable to articulate what the end game is for the United States, what we're going to support them forever is basically what Blinken uh, ex expressed today. Um, I, I, I look to Congress, and, and even if it happens, I look to the right wing uh, to raise these legitimate questions about the U.S. role and the U.S. mission vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine and what it is that we are hoping to achieve. Um, and, I, and I say that knowing that I also am putting myself in a position of being considered pro-Putin by even expressing that point of view. Well, I'm sure you're, you're pro-peace and I'm pro-peace, but I don't think a peace on Putin's terms is even possible, is it? Certainly well, from... you know, we don't, we don't know what peace looks like, and certainly our negotiated efforts have generally been a failure from, from the Vietnam War all the way to the present. And, and ultimately, if Putin looks at our record in Afghanistan or our record in Iraq or our record in Vietnam, 
uh, he would say to himself that the United States is ultimately going to cut and run. Well, that is not the fault of the right wing in America. That's just the reality of, uh, of Americans' re reluctance to uh, utilize its power to achieve ultimate victory. And that's where the American people are today. Uh, they would not be in favor of American military intervention in Ukraine. And they're ambivalent about billions of dollars being given to Ukraine without some clear view of the point of giving them. And I think that part of the problem, Ian, is that the news media uh, doesn't report the war uh, accurately. Uh, we spend more time uh, worrying about the geopolitical dimensions of the war and less time thinking about the military dimensions of the war because the military dimensions of the war purely are completely in Ukraine's favor and we should adjust ourselves to the reality that though Moscow has a lot of military materiel, it doesn't have a workable or threatening military. It has a reckless leader. And those are two different things. And that does not demand us to expand NATO. That does not demand that we spend more billions of dollars. It doesn't demand any of the things that are on the agenda today. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm saying basically that uh, if we understood how well Ukraine has done and how badly Russia has done, it would also shape our view as to what the political outcome might be or what might be possible than if we saw Ukraine teetering on the edge of defeat, because that shapes our view of what is diplomatically and politically possible in a very different way. Well, while we are cheering Ukraine on and feeling good about giving the Russians a black eye, uh, Ukraine is being destroyed. I believe that, that I, I totally agree with you, Ian, and I and I have been writing this since last May uh, that the Ukrainians are winning and that continuing the war and our encouraging that the war continue is being done on the backs of the Ukrainian people. And um, we seem to be uh, complacent about that fact uh, because essentially it is a way in which the United States and the NATO countries can have a hands-off policy. So we we talked a little bit about the right-wing support for Russia or Putin in this war in Ukraine. What about support on the left? Because I'm getting lots of mail from listeners saying, how come you're not interviewing Cy Hirsch about his article? And I mentioned in some interview recently that I thought it was completely ridiculous. And that really angered a lot of my listeners. So you've worked with Cy over the years. What do you make of his uh, recent article? Well, I don't think that the United States was behind Nord Stream. And I don't think that you could make an argument in any way that the Biden administration has the stomach or the proclivity towards this kind of an operation. And uh, I'm afraid that I would have to say that uh, Sai's article is completely wrongheaded. But I also would remind your listeners that Sai uh, was wrong about the use of chemical weapons in Syria. He was wrong about the killing of bin Laden. He, he was wrong about a war with Iran. Uh, he's been wrong about many things in the past 
10 or 20 years. And though that doesn't erase his magnificent reporting around my lie or around um, Cointelpro, uh, the, the FBI spying in the 1970s, uh, I, I also at the same time feel compelled to tell your listeners that, uh, that uh, either his article is a, is a wholesale fabrication uh, or it's, uh, it's some egotistical source doing the worst of conspiracy theories and, and conspiracy mongering. So, so I, I uh, have been reluctant to uh, write about or speak about Sai's story because I also feel like it's only having an impact in a certain circle. But the most important part of what I am concerned about is that we divide the nation between pro and anti-Putin, as you have done today in this interview, Whereas I think that it could be pro and anti-war and it could be pro and anti-America. And I don't necessarily see those as impossibles while at the same time criticizing Washington or its policies and not being a, a, a dupe of Russian propaganda and the Russian system. So with that in mind then, Bill, what chance then is there we know that Putin is not showing any inclination for any kind of peace deal. He's doubling down, and he's made it clear that he's doubling down, and, and his strategy is, I can wear you out. I've got the time. What about the Chinese effort then? Is that is there any possibility that the Chinese could pull something off here? I know people have been very skeptical about their 10-point peace plan, but somebody's got to step in here somewhere. Well, the the world is pretty clearly divided on this question, and and though we had all sorts of hysterical reporting that the Syrians were sending 10,000 soldiers to Ukraine, that never happened. And then we had hysterical reporting that North Korea was providing Russia with uh, uh, artillery, and that was like in the onesies and twosies. And, and, and now we've had this uh, tempest in a teapot over whether or not China is going to supply Russia with weapons when it has appeared to have no a desire to do so. So I do hold out some hope that China uh, might see itself as an uh, interlocutor. But I, I think that the missing ingredient is not just in the Kremlin, Ian. The missing ingredient is in the White House as well. Uh, the Biden administration can't decide what it actually wants to happen in Ukraine, and it certainly can't articulate what it wants to happen. And until uh, uh, Ukraine and the United States and Russia uh, kind of come to a consensus that the war is not going to go anywhere, uh, then I don't think that, that anyone is going to be able to intervene and negotiate a ceasefire, a freeze, and then possibly uh, the result of uh, some kind of pullback or some kind of political uh, solution. So you've got Kiev, who really doesn't want to move an inch because they smell victory, You've got Washington, which, as far as I can tell, is pretty much brain dead on the question of how to extract itself from the Ukraine war. Uh, you've got Russia, which is intransigent on the question of both military and political and economic uh, facets of the war. And Putin seems to be willing to destroy Russia on behalf of this uh, campaign. So I look to India or China or other countries uh, that might be able to help to negotiate an outcome, but it really is dependent upon 
uh, Washington and Kiev and Moscow uh, changing their view of what is possible on the ground. So I think that there's one element of what you're describing, Ian, that's incredibly important, which is that Moscow does see itself as waiting out the West and waiting out um, Ukraine. At what point does it exhaust itself, exhaust itself of men and materiel, exhaust itself of war? And every war does have this um, imprint in which uh, there, it, there does reach a point of exhaustion. So, so at some point, we're going to get there. But just in the last minute, if the war is still a brutal stalemate, say beginning in a year from now, in February 2024, March 2024, and Ukraine is still being destroyed, then Biden's going to have a lot of pressure on him, given that he's promised everything and there's no victory and it will look like failure. And by that time, China might be helping out Russia and Biden then be imposing additional sanctions on the Chinese economy and triggering, you know, supply chain problems, which will affect our economy. And he's going to be in a bad shape if the economy's bad in 2024. And all these Republican presidential hopefuls like Ron DeSantis, uh, they'll be licking their chops. Well, that's the pessimistic doomsayer's view. My my view is the war is met is reached a stalemate, and neither side seems to have the ability to change that. Uh, Putin is uh, receiving some pressures at home. Uh, the Republican Congress uh, is asking legitimate questions about what our mission is in Ukraine and whether or not we should be funding the war to this effect. And uh, that might force the Biden administration to impose its own limits. And by imposing its own limits, it puts pressure both on Ukraine and Russia to find a negotiated solution. And I think that's all going to happen in the next year. And I don't think we're going to have the, the, the pessimistic outcome you predict. Well, I don't know that I predicted, but uh, if Putin's going to wait us out in a year from now, we may have that situation that I just outlined, which is not going to be good for Biden and the Democrats. It won't be good for anyone. You know, at this point, Ian, if we are concerned about the question of war and peace and we're concerned about the plight of the Ukrainian people and the future of that nation, uh, then it's more important as to whether or not Biden is going to be the next president. So I really don't give a crap about whether or not uh, Biden uh, survives or Biden has an impact sure. I, I about the United States. Right. But I mean, I'm just saying the guy is going to have to make decisions for his own survival as well to end this war quicker. I'm not advocating for Biden. Well, I understand that. But in, in, if Biden makes that if that case is made to him by his political advisors, that the United States has to figure out how to get to that place, it's going to take a reorientation of our view of what's going on in Ukraine so that we understand that Russia is not some dire threat to the United States. In fact, the Russian military has been decimated by this war and Russia has been shown to be a paper tiger with nuclear weapons and that that might influence what we think is possible in the future. Well, William Mark, and I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me on, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with William Arkin, who's a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts, whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. 
He served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations including the U.S. Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch and the Natural Resources Defense Council. And he's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless War and his latest On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of whether Putin's appearance on state TV today and his convening of the Russia's National Security Council tomorrow to address so-called terrorist acts on Russian soil could be a prelude to a false flag operation to be carried out by the Kremlin so that Putin can impose martial law. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Olga Lautman, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin Files podcast series, which features expert discussions on the Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations, and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine, their impact on the West, and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. Welcome to Background Briefing, Olga Lotman. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Olga. And President Putin has taken to state television to talk about an incident in the Bryansk region, which borders on Belarus and Ukraine. And he told the Russian people that today they, meaning he said terrorists, they, terrorists, committed another terrorist act, another crime, penetrated the border area and opened fire on civilians. They saw that it was a civilian car, that civilians and children were sitting there and opened fire. It is exactly such people who set themselves the task of depriving us of historical memory. They will achieve nothing. We will put the squeeze on them. So who is he talking about here? Who did this, whatever it is, in Russia? Well, officially checking the latest news from, um, you know, the past hour in Russia, because now there's new breaking news, which I'll get to in a moment. Um, He is blaming the Ukrainian armed forces and uh, groups that are acting on their behalf. Um, and now the newest breaking news is that there was an explosion outside of Moscow, uh, in Kolomna, Russia. And, um, right now there's not too many details except, uh, videos on official press circulating of the explosion. And we're not sure what the target was. Well, so we know that, that follows in- from this morning. <laughs> Right, but we know that in the last few days there have been drones going deep into Russia. One crashed outside of Moscow and another had them shut down airspace over St. Petersburg. Now, there's a video online claiming to show members of a Ukrainian-based Russian volunteer group, the RVC. So are they involved in this? 
with this particular attack, I am not sure. And again, so uh, as far as this group, I mean, you know, they claim to be against Putin. They, you know, claim to be that they are fighting uh, against, uh, you know, uh, conducting these uh, sabotage operations inside of Russia. And they took credit for this morning. Again, there. first of all, now that I am reviewing the news, there is absolutely no evidence that anything even happened in Bryansk. This has all the fingerprints of an FSB operation because all the information coming out is from inside Russia, from the government, uh, from the governor of Bryansk, from the official government, from the Kremlin, and from FSB. Um, and they claim they chased them back to Ukrainian soil. Now, if these people conducted a shooting this morning as civilians inside of Bryansk, FSB would not be chasing them back to Ukraine. They would have, you know, did everything to arrest them in order to use them for propaganda on state TV. Um, so it is not extremely clear what happened this morning, but the fact is that over the past month, the Russian uh, state media has been conditioning Russians for terrorist attacks, and they have been laying the groundwork for these attacks. I have even, like, you know, a few times over the past uh, several weeks um, have warned that Russia is preparing for a domestic terrorist attack that they themselves will conduct, because, frankly, that's all Putin knows and how he got into power when he blew up the apartment buildings in Moscow and then the several other, you know, terrorist attacks inside of Russia that have happened over the past decades. And the information space inside of Russia, like every other day, FSB is taking credit for disrupting an attack, for arresting, um, you know, Ukrainian saboteurs that we have yet to see uh, that were planning an attack. And this has all the fingerprints this morning, whatever did happen, whether it physically happened or whether they manufactured this event, it has all the fingerprints of FSB. Well, Putin is convening a meeting of the Russian National Security Council in the Kremlin tomorrow, Friday. So it looks as if he's really making a big deal out of this. So this group that's been identified, the Russian Volunteer Corps, the RVC, According to Bellingcat, they described the RVC as a unit officially formed last year made up primarily of anti-Putin, anti-Kremlin, Russian far-right figures active in Ukraine. So if the RVC is anything like the Russian imperial movement, which is a, a fascist movement, I don't understand how the Ukrainians would want anything to do with these people because uh, they just feed Russia's narrative that they're fighting Nazis in, in, in Ukraine. And that's exactly it. I mean, logically, we know that Ukraine is relying on aid from, you know, United States, from the from Europe, from Canada, from the international community. They're relying on weapons shipments in order to fight back Russia, to defeat Russia on their soil and, uh, you know, and, and for their existence, because if Russia conquers Ukraine, their, you know, Russia's goal is to erase Ukrainians, and they have said it so many times over. 
So logically speaking, Ukraine knows that the whole world is watching every single move that they are doing, um, you know, and every communication, every move. Why in the world would they partner with a far-right Nazi group knowing that Russia used, um, you know, Nazi as a protest, you know, as the pretext for invading Ukraine. So the whole thing, honestly, it doesn't make sense. And it is very interesting as far as this meeting goes tomorrow, because officially there are, you know, reports that there is a meeting. But then again, Peskov came out, which is Putin's spokesperson, to deny that there is, a, you know, an emergency meeting. So they are putting so much disinformation out. And then they just, within the last hour, interviewed from uh, this Russian group, they interviewed um, the mother of the head of the group. And again, like in her interview, she said, well, this looks like my son, but I can't be fully sure that this is my son. So they are playing it both ways as both, you know, uh, basically confusing the, the information space, which is what Russia excels at. And to add one more thing, um, which is a, another interesting um, uh, uh, data point, uh, the past few weeks there has been a lot of chatter uh, that um, you know Russia might conduct operations inside of Transnistria in Moldova and also in Belarus. And I mean the chatter has been growing to alarming levels. Um, that they are preparing false flag operations in Moldova and bo- both in Moldova and in Belarus to the point that over the weekend they had, you know, this uh, like riots and attempted to try to storm, uh, you know, the local buildings. And it, it, it the police calmed the situation down, but it was clearly a Kremlin provocation. And the fact that this happened right outside the border of Ukraine um, near uh, Bryansk, again, lays like the groundwork that if they do conduct a false flag operation in Belarus or Transnistria, that they can then go ahead and say, well, look, Ukrainian armed forces did this in Bryansk on this date. Right. But you're suggesting that Putin may be planning for a big false flag operation in Russia itself something dramatic like blowing up an apartment buildings and blaming it on the Ukrainians striking deep inside Russia, which would then, what what would his motive be for that? The information space um, over the past month, Russia has been conditioning for, you know, to have everyone comfortable with the fact that there are terrorists operating on Russian soil. And the KGB playbook and the FSB playbook, I mean, is one and the same as far as them setting up false flag operations and terrorist attacks inside of Russia to blame on outside forces in order, one, uh, you know, to get sympathy from the civilians, because as of now, yes, people support the war inside of Russia, but clearly they are not, you know, too ambitious to be thrown as cannon fodder into Ukraine. And you don't see opposite of, you know, seeing them enlisting for military, they're all hiding or fleeing. So one, he can, you know, issue a a martial law if a huge attack does happen inside of Russia. 
And two, I mean, gain sympathy from the civilians like this is what we're fighting with. Because also at the same time, Russia's intelligence agency, SBR, a few weeks ago, came out with this absurd statement that the United States is training um, uh, al-Qaeda and ISIS to send small groups to conduct terrorist operations inside of Russia. I mean, this is laughable. It's a complete lie. Uh, But again, they are really building this terrorist pretext. And final thing with that, um, during Navalny protest a few years ago, when the protests were gaining strength, in St. Petersburg, there happened to, a bomb happened to go off in the St. Petersburg uh, train station. And after that, suddenly, you know, the new laws came in because they are dealing with a terrorist attack and they had to stop all protests. And basically, people, you know, couldn't gather in larger groups and whatnot. So, so, just so in the last... it looks like they're heading for both. So just in the last minute, though, Olga, I'm having trouble figuring out who are the fascists here. I mean, you do have fascist ultra-nationalist Russians wanting to go back to the Tsarist, like the uh, Russian imperial movement. You have the Azov Brigade in uh, Ukraine that a lot of people on the left say that they justify Russians, Russia's uh, invasion. But Putin himself seems to be a fascist. So who's a fascist here? Well, frankly speaking, you know Wagner, right? Because everybody has right. uh, had, uh, you know, has had Wagner in their top news, you know, every single day for the past several months. Wagner was founded by a GRU colonel. His name is Dmitry Utkin. And the reason he actually named it uh, Wagner is because um, he named it after the, first of all, with his call sign in in GRU, and second of all, he named it after the German composer. So that's one. And he also has Nazi, you know, logos tattooed on his body. Then you have the Rusich movement, who has been fighting inside of Ukraine since 2014, who have videos and are proudly flaunt and hail, you know, to Hitler. Um, And then you have the Russian imperial movement. And then, of course, you have uh, Putin and his brigade. I mean, Putin has used the Russian imperial movement, which is designated as a terrorist organization in the United States. He has used them in order to bring Nazis into Russia to train them at paramilitary camps in St. Petersburg. So clearly the, the fascist, and the Nazi connection is coming from Russia. And to finally, to add a final point to that, when Putin, you know, was in KGB serving in Dresden, he actually recruited and sent a Nazi to start a movement inside of West Germany at the time. And I mean, that's pretty much in the early days of his career. So he has always seen the benefit of using Nazis in order to promote whatever geopolitical agenda there is or strategic, uh, their strategic military goals. Mm-hmm. And actually, one more final point. Um, we also know that there was a Russian intelligence officer living in Moscow who established a forum in 2011 that pretty much was like the Facebook of Nazis. And it brought all the Nazi groups from uh, you know, around the globe to be on this forum to discuss, you know, uh, um, various whatever operations and, and their agendas and, you know, the way that we see the world, right, manifestos and whatnot. 
it was shut down finally in 2017. So, I mean, all the indications is that President Zelensky, who is a Jew, whose family survived the Holocaust, is not the Nazi. And even though there has been controversial information surrounding um, uh, Azov, which has been, you know, basically since 2014, Russia has been generating this information against them for the fact that they, you know, fought against uh, Russian invaders when they annexed uh, Crimea and occupied Donbass. Um, there is a small fraction of them. I mean, we are talking out of a country of 44 million. There is a handful of them. Right. So the point is that the, the the case for fascism is absolutely uh, belongs to Russia. Well, Olga Laman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Olga Lautman, who's a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, who is also the creator and co-host of the Kremlin Files podcast series, which features expert discussions on Kremlin's internal affairs, global operations and tactics used from their hybrid warfare toolkit to destabilize Western democracies. And Olga's research focuses on the cross-section of organized crime and intelligence operations in Russia and Ukraine and their impact on the West and the monitoring of active measures campaigns conducted by the Kremlin to destabilize democratic practices and influence foreign elections. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.